Hi, I'm Carmen LaBurge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBurge. Your daily encouragement that God has the world in the hollow of his hand. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBurge on Faith Radio. If we're going to Well, good morning, good morning, good morning. It is Friday, the 16th of September, and if I sound a little bit tired, it's because I am. We both are. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, good morning. I'm Carmen LaBerge. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen on the Faith Radio Network. And if you've been with us um, really any hour of any day for the past um, four days, you know we have been celebrating together, um, praying together, giving together in the midst of Faith Radio's fall fundraiser. And um, I have two thoughts. Mm. Wow and thank you. Those are two good thoughts. Mm -hmm. Very good thoughts. Wow to God and thank you to you. Thank you for being conduits of God's extraordinary blessings and um, resources. I just, I mean, I hardly know what to say. And so I'm just going to say thank you. And um, a lot of folks uh, went ahead and gave even you know, after what we might consider after hours last night. And so I'm going to say some thank yous and Paul will graciously scroll up the screen for me because for whatever (laughs) reason, my mice are not working on my side. All right, here we go. So thank you so much to a friend in Park River, North Dakota. You checked in just before the end of um, uh, or the top of the six o'clock hour, which means that your gift was doubled in our uncapped our un- uncapped match hour. So thank you so very much. William in Minnetonka, Minnesota, your $180 gift was doubled as well. Mark from Coon, Rapid- Coon Rapids, Minnesota, your um, $480 gift at that. Thank you so much for that. Um, it was team, doubled. Team 40 gift. That's doubled as well. A friend in, I'm going to let Paul start here and do some. Thank Lake you, Paul. Lake <laughs> Thank you. Wisconsin? Yes. <laughs> as well as Lois from Sioux Falls. Thank you for your uh, Team 40 plus gift. Beverly from Sioux Falls, South Dakota. Thank you for your generous gift. Patty from Rogers, Minnesota. These all came in last evening right as we were finishing up this yeah, so unlimited of, match challenge. All it of was, those were doubled. All of yes. those. So thank you so very much. It's incredible. And Doreen from Marshfield, uh, Wisconsin. Joan from Blaine, Minnesota. Yes, we will be praying for your husband. Mm-hmm. Our, our staff will get together and pray about that. Mm-hmm. We also have an anonymous friend from Bismarck, North Dakota. Wow. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is, this is lost her husband due, due, a, due to a suicide. Faith Radio playing a huge part in her spiritual growth even before the tragedy. Don't think she could get through everything she went through without Faith Radio. Diane from Maplewood, thank you. Anonymous gift from Minneapolis. Another uh, Champlin, Minnesota. We have Karen, thank you for your very generous gift. John from Mount Horb, Wisconsin. David from Madison, Wisconsin. He came in twice. Uh, which <laughs> Thank is you nice. so much. And then it's we have twice as nice. Yeah, twice as nice. Thanks, Kathleen David. from Sioux Falls. I love this one. Appreciate Faith Radio and all the programs. I usually listen to the podcast at the end of the day with Mornings with Carmen. Carmen's a delight, a voice to stand strong in our faith uh, for our faith in Christ. Well, we, we try. She tries. And then we have from Lodi, California. Thank you for your gift, as well as James and Judy from Moorhead, who came in late last night. Thank you for your gift to support. <laughs> 
Hey, as we open this morning, um, let me pray for each and every um, person who has come alongside us in our fall fundraiser. This is listener-supported radio. We couldn't do it without you. We wouldn't want to do it without you. Mm -hmm. It wouldn't be any fun at all. So thank you so very much. Holy God, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. We want to glorify your name. Um, We do this. We do this for you and because of you and in you and with you. And uh, and so thank you. Thank you for all of our brothers and sisters in Christ who have come alongside us in this ministry and said, yeah, I support the mission of Faith Radio. I love Faith Radio. Um, and, and Father, thank you. Thank you for whatever the good works are that you have prepared in advance for us to do and for this listener support, which makes it possible for us to say yes to you when you invite us to expand the footprint of this ministry even further. All to your glory and to the advancement of your kingdom purposes in this generation, we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Hey, friends, um, our growing your faith verse of the day is from Jeremiah chapter 9, verses 23 and 24. This is what the Lord says. Don't let the wise boast in their wisdom or the powerful boast in their power or the rich boast in their riches. But those who wish to boast, they should boast in this alone, that they truly know me. And understand that I am the Lord who demonstrates unfailing love and brings justice and righteousness to the earth and that I delight in these things. I, the Lord, have spoken. Friends, that passage is um, best read in conversation with the New Testament, um, particularly Paul's first letter to the Christians in Corinth. So if you're going to spend some time today in God's word, which I obviously encourage you to do, where in the word are you today? Spend some time in Jeremiah 9, 23 and 24, and then turn to 1 Corinthians um, and read there. You need to read from uh, from chapter 1 through chapter 12 because uh, Paul talks about this topic throughout. 1 Corinthians 1, verse 31, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. And then reading ahead to 2 Corinthians ten seventeen, but he who boasts is to boast in the Lord. So this boasting in the Lord conversation is before us in both the Old and the New Testaments. Let us be people who are celebrating the glory of God today and finding our glory in him. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. I'm Carmen LeBurge. Next up, we're going to talk with Steve West. We're going to check in on what's happening in terms of our religious liberties and some stories developing across the country and around the world. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. that gave um, in our fall fundraiser from Hawaii, then um, Steve West is your kind of guy, because isn't that just kind of Hawaii music that we bring Steve into? Steve, good morning. Good morning, Carmen. Good morning. We had um, we had gifts from all over the country and around the world in support of our fall uh, fundraiser here at Faith Radio. And so if I sound a little tired today, it's because I've been on air 26 hours this week. And um, it was really exciting. And so um, I look forward to you carrying the ball uh, during this conversation. How's that oh. sound? <laughs> I'll do my best. Fantastic. All right. So we're going to turn with Steve West to uh, the Liberties Roundup. You can find it at World News Group. That's WNG.org. Tell us about what's going on in California and how a ruling there might curb California's assisted suicide law. Oh, I'm not prepared on that one, but I'll I'll do my best, Carmen, to tell you about that one. Um, There is a law in California that uh, requires... um, potentially required physicians in California to assist someone in their euthanasia, their suicide attempts for each other. And this particular law was 
put on hold by a judge out there uh, after it was challenged by a group of lawyers that um, Christian lawyers, actually religious lawyers who said that uh, this violated their beliefs to have to do that. So it's put on hold for them. And that's a good that's a good sign. That's what I know about that ruling out there. OK, that's super helpful. And if you want to read more about that, you can do so at World News Group. Um, there was a there's an article there uh, and it's just entitled Ruling Could Curb Assisted Suicide Law. All right, Steve, let's go to um, let's go to a piece here that you've written called Parental Pushback. Schools and parents locked in a legal battle over who has final authority over children. Hey, um, let me just go ahead and say, um, you know, my kids that are in school are still my kids. That's exactly right. And that's exactly what this parent that I interviewed in Wisconsin told school authorities there. This is my child. You know, I get to decide whether she's called uh, uh, Amy or, or, or called by a boy's name or whatever it is. Uh, and this this is kind of one of the most disturbing things that I've seen uh, yet in school situations. Um, of course, there's a lot going on in schools, but in this particular situation, uh, there's there's a family uh, that was in the school district who basically their their daughter, who was um, 12 years old, uh, decided at school that she was a boy. And so the school authorities cooperated with that uh, without contacting the parents because the child didn't want to contact the parents and began this gender transition with her, a social gender transition with her. In other words, she gets to be called by uh, the name that she chooses, the boy. She gets to be treated as a boy. She gets to use boys' locker rooms and boys' restroom facilities. And all of this, just as if she were a boy, uh, without her family knowing, without her uh, parents knowing. And so this is um, when the mother found out, the child told the mother eventually, she pulled her out, put her into a uh, uh, inpatient psychiatric care. She didn't know what else to do with her. And she came out of that very angry at her, uh, and telling her that she was the problem, that they told her that her parents were going to be her biggest issue when she got out. Uh, well, she said, well, I'm not going to call you by that name. You are a girl. And she stayed home. And after about two weeks, she decided that she was, in fact, a girl. So, you know, that's the kind of thing that she ran into. But this school actually had a policy. The whole school district did in Wisconsin, a policy of not disclosing these types of issues to the parent. In other words, they say, yeah, we believe in parents' rights, but parents' rights end at the school door. Hmm. So when you deliver your child to us, we take care of them. We know what's best for them. And, you know, you really don't get to have much of a say in that at all, particularly if the child says otherwise. So that's the kind of thing that we're running into. And this is not just in Wisconsin, but there's several school districts across the country where there are lawsuits going on involving just this sort of thing. Hey, I want to invite you guys. So to, that's the issue. Yeah, I want you to invite you guys to read this entire story and the conversation that uh, that Steve had with this mom in Wisconsin uh, it, it also is going to help you understand what's happening in other places, not just in Wisconsin, but across the country in relationship to parental rights and what's going on in our schools. Again, you can follow Steve West at World News Group, WNG.org. If you sign up for the Liberties Roundup, then you'll get this article and others like it um, as they're posted. So we're going to return to our conversation with Steve West in just a moment. We're going to be talking about something going on in Washington state um, where a ban has been upheld against counselors talking with minors regarding unwanted um, gender dysphoria. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen. As you know, this is a rebroadcast of the live radio show carried on the Faith Radio Network. There's a lot going on at Faith Radio. 
Tons of free resources just waiting for you and for you to share with others at MyFaithRadio.com. How does that all happen? Well, it happens through listener support. So Faith Radio, Mornings with Carmen, all available because of listener support from listeners, well, just like you. If you're a supporter, thank you so very much. If you'd like to become a supporter today, just visit MyFaithRadio.com. And again, thanks for being a part of what we do every day at Mornings with Carmen. It's like the brightest sunrise Waiting on the other side On the darkest night Don't ever lose hope Hold on and believe me Continuing our conversation with Steve West He's the editor of the Liberties Roundup for World Magazine You can find what we're talking about at WNG.org um, Steve, help us understand What's going on here So if I have a, you know, if I have a minor Who is same-sex attracted or gender dysphoric, you know, it's a girl who thinks that she's a that she's a boy, a boy who thinks that he's a girl and they it's unwanted. They they desire to um be having a conversation with somebody who's going to help them through that. Counselors in Washington state are not allowed to have those kinds of conversations with minors. What's going on? That's exactly right. Um and we should say licensed counselors. Uh, so if you're like a, a pastor or some counselor that is under the uh, supervision of a church, uh, this doesn't apply. But Brian Tingley is a licensed counselor. He is also a Christian. He's in Washington state and he cannot talk with a minor who wants to talk with them about unwanted same-sex attraction or gender dysphoria. They're struggling with their gender identity. So he can't talk to them. And this has been going on for you know, over over two years now, uh, Tingley had to sue the state over the state law that uh, they're known as conversion therapy laws. And it's a bit of a misnomer because conversion therapy historically was referred to all kinds of really extraordinary and, and inhumane kind of treatments that were administered to try to shock someone out of a uh, 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 a same-sex attraction or a generally, generally it was same-sex attraction, sometimes a gender identity issue. And that's just not what's happening here. It's just purely talk is all that's happening. And it's talk at the request of the person who is suffering the same-sex attraction or the gender dysphoria. So he cannot, and this is an appeals court, Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals, a panel of that court, three-judge panel, said that the Washington law is is appropriate. So it upheld that Washington law. So he, I suspect this is not the end of this case, that uh, the attorneys that represent him will ask the full court, the full Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals, which is something like 29 judges on that court to hear this case, or it could take it directly to the Supreme Court. You know, what I found about the case, it was a, the most troubling thing about the case was it kind of, kind of has shades of that um, dispute that I mentioned in Wisconsin earlier as we were talking. Um, there's it, it just seems to set parents against children and you know at odds with the state uh, because what it says is um, the judge said there was that you know Tingley claims that he has minor patients who want to receive conversion therapies. Perhaps he does, but a review of his complaint reveals examples of children who claim to want conversion therapy only after their parents bring them to Tingley for it. And he basically goes on to say that you know, parents may not know better than professional medical associations in the state. And this is particularly so when their treatment is encouraged by the sincerely held religious beliefs of their parents, from whom children rely on for shelter, food, and financial support. So it's almost as if he's saying, look, parents really have it over on their children. They have this uh, this 
uh, wedge because they are the ones that provide financial support. So when they bring a child in, uh, we need to be sure that the child uh, is doing what the child wants and not what the parent wants. And you see how that kind of drives a wedge between parents and children. And the, the state is saying, we know better. And these professional doctors or therapists or counselors, they know better. These organizations do. So that's kind of a dangerous kind of sign that uh, of, of the state's activity in these particular matters. So I want to talk with you um, briefly about uh, this Supreme Court ruling in relationship to Yeshiva University. But before we run out of time, um, can you can you just reflect? I know this is not teed up for you and I to talk about, but I feel confident, Steve, that this sure. is in your wheelhouse. So um, we're we're we are all uh, along with everybody else in the world paying attention to what's happening in England um, with the the death and period of mourning. Um, the processions, the events surrounding, and then ultimately the funeral, and then the what will be the coronation of the next king um, in England. And so in the midst of all of that, there are people expressing what they thought was their freedom of speech. Um, you know, a person holding a sign that says, not my king, or a person holding a sign that says, who elected him? These would be uh, people who have been arrested. Um, a, a man arrested during the procession of the Queen's coffin because uh, he was, quote, breaching the peace um, because he was, you know, saying things that, you know, he thought he was free to say. Talk with us about the difference between a system of government like the one in England and ours, because here you would not be arrested for such things. So we think of ourselves as being, you know, like born out of um, a freedom of speech that we might have had, uh, you know, as subjects of an English king, but we would not have had the same kind of protections that we have here in the United States of America. Like something is different here, even than in England. Well, that's that's right. There is something different. We, you know, we have a constitution here with the First Amendment, which guarantees us the right to free speech. And these are these are rights that really are supposed to we recognize these rights as things that preexisted uh, the, the government. In fact, they're natural rights that we have to us. And in our country, a lot of countries have protections like this you know, for free speech and, and other freedom of religion, those types of things. But they don't have a, a, a system where that constitution uh, can trump other things that happen. In other words, there's a review of other laws or other actions under that constitution. And that constitution is binding, at least, you know, what the courts, how the courts interpret that constitution. So I'm not exactly sure exactly how that works in England. Uh, it certainly is a different kind of it's a democracy to some extent, but it's a constitutional monarchy as well. And I forget how the law, you know, uh, exactly operates there. But even in countries like ours where we have a constitution, you know, there's there's um, the courts recognize that there can be legitimate time, place and manner restrictions on speech. And so it may be that in England uh, that these acts are occurring at times and places and manners that are not authorized or that they are a breach of peace in some way. Uh, and that's why they're doing that, arresting people for that. Um, I don't know uh, what the case is there. Uh, and even if there is freedom of speech, uh, there are occasions, it, it, it's um, maybe you shouldn't be arrested, but there are occasions when maybe you shouldn't speak, mm -hmm. particularly during a funeral possession. So there's freedom of speech and there's, there's the idea of should you actually speak during this particular time?
Yeah, using that's the your, best I can say about that. Yeah, like using your freedom as license, right? I mean, I think that yes, I think that as it. Christians, that's probably the perspective we should take here. Um, and so I'm always, you know, trying to help people connect what's going on in the headline news and the things that are consuming the culture. And this is certainly the story consuming the culture in terms of things that people are uh, paying attention to globally. And so as Christians, right, we want to we want to speak well. Um, of one another when we can. And particularly in moments like this, we probably want to hold our tongue if we, if we don't have something nice to say. Like, right, that, that rule about if you don't have something nice to say, don't say anything at all, maybe particularly applies in this season of grief, not, not only for individuals and their family, but for a nation as a whole. Um, so maybe that'd be my encouragement today. Um, all right, Steve, we're going to give you one minute to talk about this Supreme Court ruling in relationship to Yeshiva University. Well, there's a, there's a Jewish university, a yeshiva, who's that's in New York City, uh, in in the Washington Heights area of New York City, and this has been going on for some time as well. But there's a gay pride club that's on campus, wants to be recognized as a legitimate club on the campus, and the school says no, this is uh, violates our religious beliefs as a school, and so it's made it to the Supreme Court because a lower court uh, ruled that the school had to recognize the uh, club under New York's anti-discrimination law. Uh, it had to recognize it because it wasn't religious enough, <laughs> as if the court could decide that. So they took it to the Supreme Court, asked for a stay of the ruling, and the Supreme Court uh, a couple of days ago uh, said, no, five to four, that it's not an appropriate time to issue such an injunction. So the school has to do that while it's, while its appeal makes its way through the state court. So it's kind of, kind of not over, uh, but Five, four, four of the justices on the Supreme Court dissented and said, no, we should do this right now. We should stay this ruling. And I think ultimately it will be. But for now, it's not. Steve, as always, um, we're so grateful for your joining us and um, helping us not only pay attention to, but understand what's happening at the intersection of our faith and our freedoms. So thank you um, so much. The Liberties Roundup is something you can sign up for at World Magazine. You can find it at WNG.org. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. I'm Carmen LaBerge, and this is Faith Radio. It's a beautiful Sometimes when I am um, reading things in preparation for our time together, I think to myself, there's no way we're going to have enough time to talk about this, but I still want to talk about it. So this is one of those times. Okay, go for it. Yeah. So in the Atlantic, there is a piece uh, entitled Of God and Machines. Here's the subhead. The future of artificial intelligence is neither utopian nor dystopian. It's something much more interesting. Here's what caught my attention. The lead paragraph. Miracles can be perplexing at first. And artificial intelligence is a very new miracle. We are creating God, the former Google chief business officer Mo Guadat recently told an interviewer. Elon Musk said a few years ago, we're summoning the demon in a talk at MIT. In Silicon Valley, good and evil can look much alike. But on the matter of artificial intelligence, the distinction hardly matters. Either way, an encounter with the superhuman is at hand. So just in that lead paragraph... Uh, we would want to deal with the word miracles, man-made miracles, artificial intelligence as a man-made miracle, the idea that people create God, that they're demons, that demons are real and they can be summoned. 
and that transhumanism or superhumanity is actually already a reality. Here's another paragraph. The confusion surrounding the miracles of AI doesn't mean that the miracles aren't happening. It just means that they won't look how anybody has imagined them. Arthur C. Clarke famously said that, quote, technology sufficiently advanced is indistinguishable from magic. And so this author of this piece in The Atlantic says magic is coming and it's coming for us all. Um, and so why lift this up? <clears throat> because you and I inhabit a culture and a society where um, advanced technologies, including AI, are now a part of almost everything. And and so it's happening um, in ways and in places and spaces that we're not frankly aware of, but we are subject to nonetheless. This um, this writer goes uh, so far as to say, you know, all technology in a sense is sorcery. A stone chiseled axe was superhuman at the time. No, uh, a, mm-hmm, I'm not even going to try to read all of these. There, there. He's talking about you know, like even like the po- pocket calculator. You know, smarter than the smartest mathematician. Um, and so I think that when we encounter language like this in the public sphere, when we encounter language of magic and sorcery and miracles and God, we as Christians need to be prepared to engage in the conversation. And so I would take a step back and talk about intelligence and natural intelligence and supernatural wisdom and the difference between knowledge and understanding information and wisdom. I'd talk about spiritual discernment. It is an opportunity to talk about spiritual things, even in a culture that might deny the supernatural, but wants to embrace the superhuman. Just a few thoughts uh, for today on a piece that I found intriguing in The Atlantic. It's a worldview conversation, which is the same kind of conversation we like to have with our friend Dan DeWitt. You can find what we're talking about next at theolatte.com. Why did C.S. Lewis, who was a theologian, why did he write sci-fi? And what can we learn from it? That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. You say you want a revolution. Well, you know, we all want to change the world. Hey, good morning again. I'm Carmen LeBurge. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. We're back to our regular program schedule after four fantastic days of the Faith Radio Fall Fundraiser. So thank you again for everyone who um, took advantage of the opportunity to celebrate what God is doing and invest in the ministry here. If you didn't get the opportunity to do that, you 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 can always be a part at MyFaithRadio.com. Um, Dan DeWitt is back with us. Uh, we're going to tee up some stories today that you can find at Theolatte.com, some things that Dan is writing and some things that Dan thinks we ought to all be reading as well. Again, it's all at Theolatte.com. Dan, good morning. Good morning, Carmen. How are you doing? I, I'm tired. <laughs> I'm tired. I'm, I'm thankful, I'm grateful, and I'm tired. Is Paul keeping you well supplied with coffee? That's my first concern. Coffee is always flowing in the morning around here. That is Amen. a given. Yeah. So let, we let actually we actually had a friend this week who was like, "Okay, just how many how much coffee do you guys drink?" And I said, "Oh, I'm you know I'm I'm only having about like three cups a day during um during these share events." And then Paul noted that my my cup is like a twenty ounce Yeti, and so he's like, <laughs> "Um, that's more than three cups. Like each one of those is like three cups." I'm like, "Oh, that might." 
that might be a, beyond the uh, recommended amount. And, and may I just be here to offer a word of encouragement? There's nothing wrong with that, Carmen. <laughs> There's nothing wrong with that. No health, no health <laughs> advice is being dispensed here this morning, just, uh, just for None. the record. Hey, um, Dan, talk with us about C.S. Lewis and why he wrote sci-fi and what we can learn from it. So C.S. Lewis, most people have met him through a magical wardrobe, and they're very familiar with the Narnia stories. And sometimes people even kind of stumble into certain kind of Easter eggs, autobiographical details that Lewis sneaks into the storyline. I mean, for example, some of them are, are quite glaring once you make the connection. Um, the Narnia stories begin with a professor who lives in Oxford who's welcoming children into his home um, because they're fleeing Hitler bombing the city of London, which happened in real life, of course, called the London Blitz. And C.S. Lewis in real life was a professor in Oxford who welcomed children into his home. And so there's all these little details one might find and be a little surprised um, about them. What are we to make of Lewis's other stories? While most people know of the Narnia stories, a lot of people are surprised to find out he loved science fiction. Um, and not only that, if you were to probe into the science fiction, you're going to find some autobiographical details as well. For example, why did Lewis write science fiction? Well, he wrote it because he lost a coin toss with Tolkien. Tolkien and Lewis were talking about stories they loved and how people weren't writing the kind of stories they loved. So they said, let's do it ourselves. And so they flipped a coin. Um, the land of the coin decided that Lewis would write about space travel while <laughs> Tolkien would write about time travel. The central <laughs> character looks a whole lot like Tolkien. Um, he's the exact same profession. So the first thing, he lost a coin toss. <laughs> the second reason Lewis wrote science fiction is he loved it. He just absolutely loved it. I have a picture framed on my wall in my home office. Um, it's one of those things, you know, if th there's a fire in the home, it's one of the things I'm going to grab on my way out the door. Of course, may, after making sure my kids are safe. And it's a signed letter from C.S. Lewis that he wrote to a sci-fi publisher. And it's a gift I was received after my time at Southern Seminary. And um, Lewis was writing to this sci-fi publisher because they had sent him a free book. And also they sent him a free book because Lewis had published short stories with them before. So Lewis loved science fiction, even all the way through um, his final interviews the last year of his life. He was talking about science fiction. And then the final thing, um, reason Lewis wrote science fiction that I draw out in this article is that Lewis had an apologetic itch he needed to scratch. And so if you read Lewis's later essays about space travel, you can trace back their embryonic um, origins. You could trace back where they came from, back to these sci-fi stories. Lewis is playing around with things that he thought Christians would have to deal with in real life. Like if we discover intelligent beings, will they be fallen? And will they need to be redeemed? So those are some of the reasons C.S. Lewis wrote science fiction. So when you, um, because you know so much more about this than I do, Dan, when you think about the theology of Lewis, um, can you describe, could you just, I know this is a little off topic, but you know, sometimes my, my tired brain has good questions. <laughs> um, if Lewis had been asked by a student, how can I be saved? How do you think C.S. Lewis would have answered that question? Or maybe he did, and I'm just not aware of it. Well, I, I think that, you know, I'll use a sci-fi example. And so it's actually not sci-fi, but related to real-life space travel. So towards the end of Lewis's life, the Russians were successful in sending a man into outer space, Yuri Gagarin. And in one of his interviews, 
um, the, the cosmonaut, the Russian cosmonaut, remarked that we've been to space and we didn't see God and we didn't see heaven. And I think that um, he wasn't really expecting to see God, you know, to look outside of the window and God to be like shrugging, you know, like, why are you up here? I put you guys way down there. I think he meant something more like, this is a human accomplishment. Um, we didn't need a Bible to build the technology to go to space. Lewis responded to him and said, you know, that's not how we'll have a relationship with God, what Christians might talk about being saved. Um, it's not going to be through finding God on our own in the same way that you might find a tree in your backyard, something that you could say, this is the exact GPS coordinates where you could find the tree. This is how tall the tree is. This is how wide it is. God's by definition outside of time and space. He's not a material being. We're not going to find God in space. And Lewis gave the example from um, a literary example. And he said that looking for God in outer space would be like Hamlet looking for Shakespeare in the attic of his home. Mm. Yeah, he'll never, he'll, Hamlet would never find Shakespeare there. And on the one hand, Hamlet's not going to find any physical evidence for Shakespeare anywhere in his world. On the other hand, all of Hamlet's world is evidence of Shakespeare. Mm. And so Lewis goes on to say, if we, if we would be saved or have a relationship with God, Hamlet or Shakespeare would have to write himself into the plot. We're not going to find him in the attic of our home. We're not going to find him in outer space, find God in outer space. So if we would know God, he would have to write himself in. And Lewis would argue that the way we are made right with God is through God sending Jesus to us, writing himself into the plot so that we can have a relationship with him. And so Lewis would, as he did on many occasions, I think that the best example is Sheldon Van Auken, this American author um, that Lewis had wrote several letters to, encouraging him to trust Christ. In one letter, Lewis said to, to Sheldon, um, he said, I, I, I don't think you're going to get out of this. I, I think that God is, is essentially after you. The Holy Spirit already has you in his nets, Lewis writes. Mm. So how would you be saved? Lewis would say, trust in the one God sent so that you could know him. Trust in Jesus. I love the language of the Holy Spirit already has you in his nets. I mean, because I just, I feel like that gives me a way to visualize in my own prayer life, um, sort of, you know, people who are seeking and searching. And if I could see them as like already in the nets, but sometimes struggling mm-hmm. against the nets or sometimes just unaware that, you know, that that's, <laughs> that that's the reality that they're in. Um, that's just so helpful. And I, I love this, uh, this language of God, you know, writing himself into, and uh, into the into the storyline of the world he created like the whole story is his and yet he writes himself in in the person of Jesus like the word becomes flesh to dwell among us i just all of that is so helpful and so good and um and i think equips us right to have different kinds of conversations when people are really searching for an answer to the question of of how must i be saved so thank you so much dan for um for taking us there because that was really beautiful and helpful. All right, let's take a very brief, um, very, very brief pause. When we come back, we're going to, we're going to come back with this question. Is everyone a believer? Is every human being a believer? Do you believe that? That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen. As you know, this is a rebroadcast of what we do on live radio every day. There's a lot going on at Faith Radio, tons of free resources just waiting for you at MyFaithRadio.com. Right now, we're inviting you to share your Faith Radio story. 
What do you love about Faith Radio? What do you love about Mornings with Carmen? How has this program changed the way you think or the way you live, the way you engage others in the conversations of the day? We really do want to hear from you. Your story could encourage someone else and certainly glorify God. So share what you love about Faith Radio by calling 877-933-2484 and leave us a message today. Again, thanks for listening. Oh, then I saw her face. Now I'm a believer. I'm a believer. Are you a believer? Dan DeWitt's going to argue that every human being is a believer. Do you believe that? You can find what we're talking about with Dan at theolatte.com. All right, sir, make the case. All humans are believers. Well, we are all believers, and I'm reminded of a great conversation between John Lennox, who I know has been on this program, who's one of my absolute heroes um, of the faith. Uh, John Lennox was talking to Richard Dawkins, and Dawkins, a famed atheist, and at one point Dawkins made a certain claim about a relationship in his life that was meaningful to him and the, the value that he has for that person. And John Lennox said something to the effect of, so you believe that that person cares for you, something like that. And he was just highlighting the fact that you can't scientifically prove that, that there there is this measure of belief that is at the heart of every relationship. Um, And that's true for one's relationship with anyone else. It's true for one's relationship, even with the physical world. I mean, you can't prove right now, Carmen, nor can anyone listen to the program, you cannot prove that the world is real. Um, You just can't. In fact, all of us have had dreams that feel very real, and we wake up and we're like thrilled that, you know, whatever we experienced wasn't real. What if you're in that kind of dream right now? You couldn't prove your way out of it. There's all kinds of things you can't prove. You can't prove that you're not some disembodied brain that's in a vat on the sitting on the shelf of some evil scientist who's programming these weird thoughts and experiences into your head. You can't prove your way out of it. Um, but you believe that you're real. You believe the external world is real. Um, So we're always operating off of some measure of belief. Even atheism itself, as this article that I link to points out, atheism itself is a belief that God does not exist. It's a belief that can't be proven with empirical evidence. Um, It's a belief. So everyone believes. The question then becomes, what belief seems to make the best sense of the world around us? So in his article, Marcelo Gleiser, um, writing at The Big Think, talks about this very thing— the reality that every person has to have some measure of belief in order to operate in the world. And what I want to ask as a Christian is what belief, whether a belief that there is no God or a belief that there's something outside of nature, what belief would make the best sense of the human experience? All right, and your answer to that question is? Well, I I think that we either have to dismiss all of the human experience as an illusion. Mm. So all of our immaterial values like purpose and justice. Love. Love, that's right. All of those things are just like personally meaningful non-realities. And so we could say the whole human experience um, is really just an illusion. There's no real morality. There's no real purpose. There's no real love or justice, but they're meaningful in the moment, but they're illusions. We could do that, or (laughs) we could say that there's a way of seeing the world that would say that these are are true, real um, things, that love is real that purpose is real, um, that our, our, our quest to see people feel um, dignity and have intrinsic worth and meaning, that that idea is something real. 
the way of seeing the world that would see those qualities as being real, the Christian worldview would be one such way of seeing the world. So therefore, I would say that's a belief that has more explanatory power, its ability to explain what we see in the world around us. So yeah, we all believe. What belief makes the most sense of our lives? And I would argue Christianity far outshines any secular alternative. Um, When we talk about, you know, people, I mean, everybody believing, everybody is a believer, everybody believes something. Um, You can correct me if I'm wrong here, Dan. I heard once that like the, the word believe is a derivative or an expression of, of, of being like our essence to live as if to believe is to live as if. And so if I'm believing something, then I'm living as if that is true and that is real. Is that one way of expressing this? I think that's a good way to express it because it really gets at the heart of what we presuppose Mm. about the world. And so we could refer to that, another way to refer to that is a priori knowledge. That's knowledge that's not based on experience. It's things we can't prove. And we all operate off of certain assumptions, things we presuppose that are um, presuppositions. Now, a presupposition is something that you suppose in advance. You live as though it's true, but you can't prove it. But it's also pre in another way. It's not just before experience. Think about the word preeminent. So if something's preeminent, um, it's, it's actually an authority source. And so our presuppositions are something we suppose before an experience, but it also becomes an authority for how we interpret our experiences. And so if someone presupposes there is no God, that's apart from their experience. They can't prove it's true, but it also becomes the lens through which they see everything else. So it's kind of, to use another big term, it's the big narrative that they use to make sense of the world, or the term we often use is it's a meta-narrative, an overarching way of making sense of the world. We live as though that meta-narrative is true, and what we have to constantly come back to, um, and, and we're forced to, life forces us, introduces to us all the time these anomalies, these things that just don't make perfect sense in, in terms of our presuppositions, what we presuppose to be true. So something happens, and we think, man, that was evil. Someone did something that's evil, and we look at our presuppositions, what we suppose in advance, and we think, well, I don't really have a category for evil. And those are the times where we start to ask, are my presuppositions right? Now, as someone who's been a Christian since I was 15, I'm now 45, I've been a Christian for three decades of life, I'm getting old, um, I, I have found throughout my life that the, the Christianity has a way of making sense of basic human intuitions, and it has a way of shining light on the human experience. And so my encouragement to anyone listening, maybe you're a a mom or a dad or someone who cares deeply for another person who's walking away from the Christian faith, my encouragement to you would be this. All of reality is our ally in pointing people to Christianity, because reality has a way of lining up with the Christian worldview. That's not to say that there are not challenges and anomalies, but at the end of the day, after 30 years of thinking about these kind of things, I've found over and over again Christianity just gives real categories for what it feels like to be human. And if it's true, then it gives us far more than categories. It gives us hope. Okay, I'm going to have Paul like um, take that segment of audio and just, I don't know, replay it over and over and over again. That was so good, Dan. Thank you um, so much. One of the things that occurs to me as you're saying that is, you know, so many people are like 
searching for a unifying uh, unifying theory of life. They're trying to make sense mm-hmm. of life. And then life often um, seems to them senseless for one reason or another. You know, either either they experience a miracle or they experience real evil. And either one of those things is disruptive to, uh, you know, their theory that all there is is what they can see, taste, uh, feel, and make happen. Um, and so this idea, this, well, this statement of truth that reality is our ally because reality lines up with um, not only what is, but but the Christian worldview, like, that's just so helpful. You know, it's, it's a reminder, too, for me. I often come back to a statement by Dorothy Sayers. Sayers said that Christianity is first and foremost a statement about the nature of reality. And so what we're saying about these claims that God exists, that God has written himself into the story, we're not saying that this is just a subjective value or some kind of youth camp experience I could have, but rather, this is actually the way the world is. There is something beyond nature. There is a God. This God who exists beyond nature has has written himself into the plot in such a way that we can know him. This is a historical claim, and it is. I think Sayers is right. It's first and foremost a statement about the nature of reality. So helpful. So helpful. Um, all right, so much more um, from Dan DeWitt available at theolatte.com, including this week's Worldview Reader. One of the things that's on there that I found um, particularly helpful is a piece from the Gospel Coalition, Three Ways Family Discipleship Changes as Kids Grow. Also, if you were saying to yourself, hey, I'd like uh, the link to that article that Carmen referred to in the Atlantic of God and Machines. That is now also included in the weekend, uh, or not the weekend, Worldview Reader. It's just the Worldview Reader now, although you're going to read it over the weekend. <laughs> so there you go. The Worldview Reader at theolatte.com. Dan, as always, thank you so much for being with us. Thanks, Carmen. Take care. You too. All right, um, so so much uh, news we could be talking about today as we bring the mind of Christ to bear on what's happening around the world. I'm just going to encourage you today to pray some weather prayers. And you know what I mean when I say that. I mean, you know, whether uh, things go your way or things go in ways that you did not expect, whether you um, have an experience today that lifts you up or disappoints and makes you sad. I mean, whether the sun shines where you are or it's overcast in all circumstances in all kinds of weather let's give glory to god let's thank him for his goodness and his grace hey let's be praying for the people of alaska they're bracing for what is going to be described as the strongest storm to impact the state in more than a decade so let's be praying for them today weather prayers thanks for listening to this podcast of mornings with carmen laburge from faith radio If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.